I'm not sure when exactly I started using it. It just seemed like it was something that's always been around us. ...against Harvard alleging discrimination against Asian Americans. history as and the first Asian American really woman in more than... The term years. Asian American. It might seem universal, but not everyone is happy about it. I think for most people, they associate Asian American with East Asians only. And as a box on American, I obviously don't fit that category. I tend to get more granular when I'm talking to someone who is also uh, Asian American. But I just prefer to be more specific and use Cambodian American whenever possible. It was something that I got introduced to when I had to start applying for colleges. His parents wanted an Asian Asian, not like a kind of Asian. This is self-evident where we take on what it means to be American by telling Asian America's stories. I'm your host, Kathy Irway, and this season of our show is presented by the Center for Asian American Media. But when we say Asian America's stories, who is calling themselves Asian American, and why or why not? As a catch-all term for some 20 million people, it's not a simple answer. We know that this episode is only going to scratch the surface and point to all the stories we can tell in the future— But to start, we wanted to take a closer look at why Asian American came to be widely used and hear from people who've struggled to feel at home with it. I thought we'd begin with our own team. So I asked one of our producers, Julia Shu, to answer a question we've been asking a lot of people. Hi, Kathy. Hey, Julia. So do you call yourself Asian American? Yes, I do. Growing up, I would say that I was Chinese-American, and then in college, that's when I started saying Asian-American. But what about you? So I'm okay with it, but um, I'm mixed. So the way I see it, it's like I have one Asian parent and Mm -hmm. one American parent. So it feels like an actual literal (laughs) description uh, to say Asian-American. Yeah. You know, it feels perfectly comfortable now, but it's something I've really grown into over the course of my life. Um, being half Taiwanese, and that's not something that people immediately recognize when they see me. Mm-hmm. You know, people have all these preconceptions about what mixed race looks like, and yeah. you know that's not true. But um, you know, I've been involved with a lot of mixed race groups, and Taiwanese American groups, and Asian American groups, and I, you mm-hmm. know, I've written a book about Taiwanese food, and Ooh. I studied Chinese when I was studying abroad in Taiwan too. So. Wow. Yeah, that's really impressive. And if anything is proof that looks don't mean anything, I don't know any Chinese, (laughs) and both sides of my family are Chinese-American. Right. I mean, so it's something I'm proud of. It sounds like Asian-American identity is this thing that through your career you've really claimed. For me, it's partly that I have family members who are active in the Asian-American movement. Oh, My uncle was a young activist in L.A., and he grew up to become a lawyer and worked on the Vincent Chin case. Oh, wow. Vincent Chin? Yeah, it was a huge deal. Yeah, so for anyone who doesn't remember the details, he was a young man who was murdered by white men who thought he was Japanese. But actually, he was Mm Chinese-American. And it was a huge turning point for the Asian-American movement. So it was 1982 in Detroit, and there were all these auto workers who were upset about competition from Japanese cars. Frustrations out on this 78 Toyota. People in Detroit were actually like smashing up Japanese cars. They were so angry. Combat is never more real and symbolic. And the white men who killed Vincent Chin yelled that he was the reason they were out of work. And then they beat him to death with a baseball bat when he was celebrating his bachelor party. Oh my God. And didn't they have multiple trials? Mm-hmm. So at first, 
they pled to manslaughter. Um, and then activists, including my uncle, led an effort to prosecute them for violating Vincent Chin's civil rights. So that was a hate crime. Mm -hmm. And the result of all of these trials and what made people so angry is that they never served any prison time. They just paid a fine. Oh my God. Yeah, so there's lots of cases in history of different Asian groups being pitted against each other, especially Japanese and Chinese Americans being forced to compete. But in this case, it really didn't matter. And the message was anyone Asian-looking is in danger because white Americans don't care about your ethnicity. They just assume that you don't belong. It was a huge reminder, too, for all Asian Americans that it's really important to have a collective voice so that you can respond to injustice. Mm -hmm. So case in point, now my uncle, Stuart Kuo, is the director of Asian Americans Advancing Justice in L.A., and it's this nonprofit legal aid civil rights organization. So I decided to call him and ask about when he first started hearing the term Asian American. I was at UCLA at age 18, and I think there was a sense of having Asian American studies rather than just Chinese studies. So I adopted kind of an Asian American viewpoint pretty early on. I think the civil rights movement was the key movement that uh, moved me. Later on, I read how the immigration law was changed in 1965. And the discussion was very much about civil rights. And so I realized that the African-American-led civil rights movement had a direct impact on Asian Americans. Wow. And so Kathy and I were actually just talking about your role in the Vincent Chin case. How did you take it when the murderers got off with no prison time? Well, I was certainly angry at the uh, outcome. It wasn't unexpected, unfortunately. I felt that we needed to build the strongest, uh, biggest uh, civil rights uh, organization uh, possible. We weren't able to go to uh, the Detroit or the Cincinnati courthouse on a continuing basis. Um, I think if we were able to have more presence, then people would pay more attention. So you mean like just having the resources to travel there might have made a difference? Yeah, we didn't have money to hire somebody to go to these places. So that was a problem. And so now that you've spent decades organizing, raising money, like building power for Asian American communities, what's been the biggest challenge? Well, I, I always thought that Asian American was both a movement and a practical um, coming together because there were so many different ethnic-specific histories and cultures, you had to bring it together in some way uh, without losing the specific identities. So that's always been kind of the tension as well as the opportunity of the Asian American term as well as the Asian American reality. Wow, your uncle is a hero. <laughs> And he's also very good at fishing. <laughs> um, but yes, he is. 
The conversation, first of all, it just made me feel so appreciative of Asian American organizations today and all of the work that they do. Yeah, and that history really places the term Asian American in a powerful place, right? Mm-hmm. With the civil rights movement as a model and gaining political power by coming together against injustice. It's like a coming of age moment for Asian Americans. Yeah, and for me, that idea of unifying for civil rights and knowing that my family played a role in it, that's why I use Asian American to describe myself. Mm -hmm. But over the past few decades, though, there have been even more changes that expand who Asian Americans are, right? Yeah. So it wasn't so long ago that Asians were banned from immigrating. But since then, with various waves of immigration from different parts of Asia, we've become the fastest growing demographic. So I wanted to talk to some folks who didn't grow up knowing any of the stuff that your uncle talked about to see how useful saying Asian American is to them. And these are young people who, if there was a survey, they'd fall under Asian American. But their personal reality is much more complicated than that. So this is a real test of the tension Uncle Stewart brought up, you know, having so many identities in one label. Mm-hmm. The first person I talked to is coincidentally also named Julia. Oh, okay. And she, she's Julia Arcega, and she's a 22-year-old, and she was born in Manila, but moved to California with her family when she was just five. And she quickly assimilated to her new home. I kind of just hopped on the plane and never really looked back, and I think that was kind of a factor in me. Loving America, <laughs> loving Starbucks. <laughs> in Manila, Julia and her mom spoke Chavacano, a dialect of Tagalog. But after the move, as part of her assimilation, her mom enforced English-only habits at home. Because I never spoke it, <laughs> I can't remember any Chavacano anymore. I kind of distinctly remember my mother, when she would speak to her relatives back at home, she would kind of go into the bedroom and close the door. And I can kind of hear what she was saying, but I didn't understand because it was in Chabucano, which I didn't remember. So it was kind of like odd growing up. I kind of got a sense it was kind of a little secret box that you kind of keep in a corner. And, and you know, that was kind of the past for me. It was kind of in that little box. With Chabucano and the rest of her past hidden in that box, Julia's connection to Filipino culture faded. But although her English was perfect, she still couldn't blend in the way she wanted to. I always really thought, you know, the the fair-skinned, blonde-haired, blue-eyed kind of girl was just so beautiful. And I really wanted to embody that kind of beauty. But of course, I couldn't because I'm just not that skin tone. And that was such a huge struggle for me. The years passed. And for Julia, identity became a question mark. She felt distant from Filipino culture, unsure how to reclaim something she'd left behind so long ago. Until one fateful day when Julia was a sophomore in college and her boyfriend dumped her via Facebook Messenger. It was finals week. I was crying my eyes out in my books and I was like, I need to find something that'll help me stop crying because I need to study. <laughs> and I can't study with tears in my eyes. So I was kind of looking around Spotify. I was like, okay, like I have to listen to this happy music, right? I stumbled upon K-pop and I was like, what the frick is K-pop? I distinctly remember Girls' Generations, Catch Me If You Can. It was just a bunch of like Asian chicks dancing, saying like, I'm gonna find my heart. And I was like, wow, like these girls are so bomb. Like, <laughs> I loved it. Wow. Can you tell me about the song? So it's like this 
sassy, trappy <laughs> song with like really big beats. And in the video, they're all just kind of like dancing in the middle of this construction zone. Like it doesn't make any sense, but that's fine because <laughs> you know, you're just kind of listening to them. They're finding their hearts. Like you're finding yours. Of course I can't understand Korean, but K-pop is really popular in the Philippines. So I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> so I think that kind of tipped the iceberg for me. Okay, so how do you make sense of that? Like you're not Korean or Korean American. So why do you think that this was such a big moment for you? I think it was such a big moment for me because it was so different. Like it was nothing I had seen, you know, and it was just, I think it was such a vague tie to anything, you know, um, Asian, really. Um, so I think I just kind of embraced that. And ever since then, I found like a K-pop community here. I go to K-pop events. And when I'm there, like it's not just Asian Americans. It's like people of all colors just kind of like gathering around and enjoying K-pop for what it is. But I do also see a lot of Asian Americans. I think that's one way that I've kind of got my start, like feeling around my Asian-ness and embracing it for what it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your Asian-ness. Yeah. So do you say that you're Asian or Asian American now? I'm still kind of grappling with that. You know, I kind of struggle with saying like, I'm Asian American just because when I introduce myself to people, they say, oh, where are you from? And I kind of give the long winded answer of I'm from Los Angeles, but I was born in Manila. So I do like to identify as I was not born in this country. This is why I'm this color. <laughs> so you don't have to do the follow-up of like, what's your ethnicity? Mm -hmm. And what about Filipino American? I mean, I, I always kind of like shy away from those labels. I don't think I would ever, ever say that out loud or ever introduce myself as a Filipino American. Like I just feel too disconnected to the Philippines in order to just comfortably take that label. <laughs> so do you know more Korean now than Chavacano because of K-pop? Um... Probably, <laughs> which is kind of like a weird thought, but yeah, probably. <laughs> so that's where Julia's at now. Not saying she's Asian American or Filipino American, but just exploring her Asian-ness and figuring it out. Hmm. Now I feel a great need to go listen to some girl's generation. <laughs> right? Can we just play K-pop the rest of this episode? <laughs> I don't know if we can afford the fees Aww. for the music. All right, fine. I do want to add that Julia sent us an email after this interview, noting that as she's gotten into K-pop more, she's been thinking about the emphasis on milky pale skin, double mm. eyelid surgery, colored contacts, yeah. which a lot of people see as a way of mimicking white or Western beauty. So she said while K-pop is still the world that made her appreciate her Asian features, now she's hoping for more darker skin representation, as in more Asians who look like her. Mm, yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I feel like her story is such a powerful endorsement of representation. Mm -hmm. Because it's true, like, K-pop stars actually look a little bit different from Julia in some ways. But still, seeing Asian women as these glamorous, badass stars was a huge change for her. It shows how collective Asian identity still can make a difference, even outside political activism. Yeah, and on the flip side, though, collective identity doesn't always work when people don't see themselves represented in the group. So next, I wanted to bring up this comment from Maha Chaudhry. She's Pakistani-American, and she was one of the voices that you heard from the start of the show. 
I think the only time I've really self-identified as Asian American is on government forms. I think for most people, they associate Asian American with East Asians only. And as a Pakistani American, I obviously don't fit that category. I also stray away from using the term South Asian. I'm super aware of the sacrifice my grandparents made when they migrated from India to Pakistan. And I want to honor that sacrifice by being really open about my Pakistani identity. Wow, yeah, I can definitely second her statement about people associating Asian American with East Asians only. Mm -hmm. Like, if you've ever been to an Asian American studies class, a huge part of it is just Chinese American history. Like, you've got the Exclusion Act, the Gold Rush, Mm -hmm. the railroads. So as a Chinese American, I get to feel included. But that's a focus that overlooks so many other identities. For sure. And that criticism could be made of Asian American organizations Mm -hmm. or Asian American media stories. Yeah. And it all goes back to what your uncle said about the tension of having so many groups in one term. So since Maha brought up government forms for the record, Asian American doesn't appear on the U.S. Census. You'd actually see all these individual boxes for Asian Indian, Chinese, Filipino, Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese, Native Hawaiian, Guamanian or Chamorro, and Samoan. And then you get these two other boxes that say other Pacific Islander or other Asian. Other Asian. Yeah. Actually, I would check that one. (laughs) Yeah. And then there's a space where you can write Taiwanese American mixed race show hosts. (laughs) There's space for that. Um, This is obviously, it's this huge range of people, and that level of detail is unique to the census. It's taken a long time to get all of those different identities listed out, and plenty of forms just say Asian. Like, one example is if you remember doing a job application, you know, there's that survey at the end that says equal employment opportunity, where they ask, are you a veteran? Do you have a disability? And that one, it just says Asian. There's just one box. (laughs) So this is like such a huge range and it shows how much variation there is just in filling out forms. Yeah. And of course, none of that, not even with the more specific categories like in the census, can account for class or religion or the other millions of factors that give Asian Americans unique backgrounds and identities. And then by default, when we erase those things, it means applying the same Asian immigrant myths to everyone. Yeah, like the the story that we came here for a better life. We mm-hmm. study really hard. We work really hard. We're good immigrants. We're good students. Yeah, and actually, that's something that really turned off the next person I spoke with from calling herself Asian American at first. Hey, we want to hear your stories and keep this conversation going online. So. Do you identify as Asian American? Why or why not? Email your story to community at selfevidentshow.com or share with us on social media at selfevidentshow with the hashtag WeAreSelfEvident. There are only so many definitions of like what it meant to be Asian American. I that like I didn't fully relate to you know um, there like there's this whole kind of script right that like your parents come here and they sacrifice everything and they're super strict and like it's super limiting and you feel like always out of touch with like American culture you have like one foot in like each door and I felt like growing up that didn't really reflect my experience. That's Alana Muhammad. 
She's 26, from Queens, New York. Her parents immigrated there from Guyana, and she describes herself as Indo-Guyanese because generations ago, her South Asian family immigrated to Guyana. And there was a lot of racial and cultural mixing there. Like, for example, she said she would celebrate Christian and Muslim holidays. And as a young kid in Queens, Alana was around a lot of other Caribbean families who understood that. But as she grew up, she started getting bused to a different school. There were two other black kids on the bus and then one Indian girl. So we'd be on the bus, like, having a good time. But then, you know, once we got off the bus and we kind of, like, self-segregated somehow. And, like, I remember uh, once in middle school, there was, like, a culture day type situation where you had to, like, bring in a dish from your, like, culture. And so I brought in some uh, uh, bacon saltfish. Wait, sorry to interrupt, but what is bacon saltfish? Okay, so bake is this type of round bread, and it's puffy, and uh, saltfish is pretty much what it sounds like. It's fish that's been cured with salt and rehydrated, and then it's cooked with onions and other spices, mm. and you eat these things together. That sounds really good. Mm-hmm. And actually, Alana told us during our interview that she wrote an essay about bake, and the teacher crossed it out and wrote the word bacon instead. Oh. And, of course, Alana's family doesn't eat pork. Oh. So. <laughs> it's funny, but it also sounds like just such a classic immigrant food moment. I know, right? So when Alana brought this to class, kids weren't really into it. My Indian friends were like, ah, sure, but no thank you. Uh, and so, like, I had this, like, whole bowl of, like, saltfish with, like, all these bakes. And then I, like, boarded the bus back home. And all of a sudden, all the kids who were, like, familiar with the Caribbean were like, oh, you have saltfish? And they just, like, dug in. So growing up, Alana identified on this cultural level with her Black Caribbean classmates, but knew that everyone saw her as Asian American. And she was starting to feel really resentful of the assumptions that came with that. Like when she felt forced to put Asian American on college applications. They always ask you that question, like, what's your race? And I always had to check Asian American, even though I felt like it didn't really describe the way I was brought up or the cultural values of being Guyanese. There's a lot of kind of like talk of respect for parents in this like kind of like slavish way. There's like all this repression. There's all this kind of like dedication to testing and things like that. But that seemed like such a small part of what Guyanese culture was to me. The disconnect between being seen as Asian American and not feeling that way grew even wider for Alana when she went to college at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Away from the relative diversity of her New York childhood, college was a painfully white environment. I remember it was like the first week of classes and this girl I did not know who lived across from me in the dorms, she kind of just burst into my room. I didn't know her at all. And she just looked at me, grabbed me, pulled me into her room and was like, sat me down in front of her computer. And she went, oh, do my marine biology homework. You look smart. You know, when we talk about otherization, it can sound like just a word, but... Once you, like, don't feel like yourself, you kind of, like, lose your identity. For me, it just made me so, so depressed. I think at one point, I was, like, hanging out with these, like, bad kids in their dorm. They were blasting music and drinking beer. And I had to go see, like, an alcohol counselor. And there's, like, this survey that they make you fill out. And one of the questions was, like, are you depressed? And I was, like, 
maybe I can say it here because it was just me and the computer. I didn't understand that like the answers would be fed to the alcohol counselor. And there was like one that was like, do you like think about killing yourself? I quietly checked the box, yes. She called me in the counselor and was like, are you okay? And I had to like do this whole thing where I had to like publicly admit all these feelings. The trauma of racism threw Alana into crisis. But then, the college experience showed her another side to her Asian-American identity. Alana read about all the people before her who'd experienced the same problems, both Black and Asian, including W.E.B. Du Bois, who coined the term double consciousness. He was talking about the split identities Black Americans navigate between the outside, how society sees them, and the inside how they see themselves. It helped give me this language to see that the problem wasn't me, because I think for so much of my time, I was trying to like push through like whatever veil separated me as I saw myself from like the way people were treating me. Like somehow I can show them that I'm like this like funny, brilliant person worthy of like actual human interaction. Just knowing that it's something that other people experienced helped me kind of leave that that idea behind, that I had, that there was something deficient in me. It was so strange. Like, I saw this, all this material as kind of like a lifeline. Like, I was clinging onto it for, like, ways to explain what I was feeling and ways to kind of, like, deal with what was happening to me. That lifeline, learning about past civil rights activists and organizers and feeling the connection between Asian Americans and other people of color— was what finally made Alana comfortable with the term. I identify much more loudly as Asian American than I did, I think, before I was doing it kind of resentfully. But I still like to specify that, like, I'm, like, Indo-Caribbean because I feel like it's just important to acknowledge that just because you don't come, like, straight from, you're not, like, directly descended from Asia doesn't mean that, like, you're not Asian American. And so it's, like, important to acknowledge, like, the diversity of experiences. In some ways, it's not up to us, but it's, like, what do we do with this label that we're given? So, Julia, what do we do with this label that we're given? (laughs) Um, That is such a huge question. Of course, it'll be different for everyone. But for Alana, it's like she was given this label and then she turned it into something that actually works for her. Yeah, Alana started off seeing Asian American as a term that just represented everything she didn't want to be seen as. Yeah. But then she was able to bring it back to what your uncle was talking about, about how Asian Americans are linked to other communities of color and the legacy of that history, it really made it hit home for her. Yeah, yeah. We didn't talk about it, but I wouldn't be surprised if Uncle Stewart wasn't also reading Du Bois in college too. Yeah, me neither. And that also makes me think of how there's been this trend in our story so far with Julia, Alana, and my uncle, all of them mentioned exploring this identity while they were in college. And mm. of course, you know, so many Asian Americans or people who find themselves labeled that way didn't go to college. Yeah, good point. And I think that's another perspective we've yet to cover. Or maybe they were educated in another country because mm-hmm. my mom went to college in Taiwan and she's in America now. So I bet her story around calling herself Asian American is different. Right. But for where we started this conversation, talking about the 60s and 70s student movements, 
I think it's a natural focus because college campuses have been places that give Asian Americans academic knowledge and a history of activism. So that's why I decided to talk with someone who's been researching Asian American student activism at universities. Marissa Co. Wheaton is a PhD candidate at the University of Southern California, and she's writing her dissertation about student resistance on college campuses and how it connects to racial identity. So, Marissa do you identify as Asian American? <laughs> I identify, yes, I identify as Asian American more politically than racially. I am ethnically mixed with Japanese and African American. My experience is one of a Black American. Um, I certainly identify politically with the Asian American term in terms of its political history, but I don't proclaim to have that experience racially. I see. Tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up and how that's affected your take on this. So both of my parents are actually black. Um, my mom is half Japanese. And so um, my grandma is from Sendai, Japan. She, um, you know, was an immigrant here. She came here after the war. Um, and so I grew up with her in the house until I was about 13, 14 years old. Outside, externally, like I really lived um, the experience of a black, a black American. But I would say that um, when it comes to a lot of my values, a lot of the ways that I was raised, my grandma had a huge influence. A lot of the microaggressions that I've experienced um, have been oftentimes related to being part Japanese or because of the fact that I don't racially look Japanese, I oftentimes hear really problematic statements about, um, you know, Asian people and have to oftentimes decide, am I going to respond to this or am I just going to let it slide? Um, what is my position in all of this? I always tell the students that I'm working with that I'm sort of like an insider, outsider researcher, right? Like I, I'm a part of the community. I'm in solidarity. I have a familiarity and relationship to this work, but I'm an outsider in the sense that I, I never was really engaged as um, a student in Asian American activism. So not something you participated in yourself when you're an undergrad, but now as a grad student in your research, would you say that Asian American students are more or less politically active? That's actually what I'm trying to explore. It's really hard to compare whether or not a community is more or less politically active. And the reason for that is because resistance and organizing and activism just looks, it can look so different, right? Like me asserting that my name is used properly to a tenured professor, that could be seen as very political, right? And also the traditional route, right? Like coming together as a community and protesting in front of the administration building. Asian American students oftentimes feel very challenged with how to situate themselves in the discussions about race. Because we don't teach Asian American history the way that we should in schools, there's sort of a detachment to the history. What do you think is something that we should know or should be teaching? I think it's just really important to talk about a lot of the ways that Asian Americans have been involved in other movements. We are so interconnected to every other community, right? Like we are a community of immigrants. We um, experience a type of racialization that is not the same by any means um, like African Americans, but 
similar to the one drop rule, when you think about the way that blackness is treated and othered, that anti-Asian sentiment is very is very similar in the way that we don't blend in when we stand in a crowd, right? Like that perpetual foreigner idea is still so pervasive. Right. And that experience of being othered can be unifying just as a means of survival. But we're also hearing that Asian American history and identity have been dominated by East Asian voices. Like Maha, one of our listeners, she told us that she always says Pakistani American instead of Asian American for that reason. So on a related note, Marissa Ko, what do you think about the term Asian American Pacific Islander? Every single student that I interviewed in my study, I, including Pacific Islander students, I said, what is your relationship to the term Asian American? And every single Pacific Islander student said, I have no relationship to the term Asian American. It's dangerous to attach Pacific Islander to to Asian American. And the reason for that is because there is a complicated history. What ends up happening is that, you know, Pacific Islander communities suffer because they are being placed in the same category with with statistics that don't represent their experiences. They're indigenous communities. They're, it's impossible to place them in the same category. Oftentimes when we say API, we're really talking about Asian in the same way that, you know, you know, Desi Americans might say, when you're talking about Asian American, you're really talking about East Asians. You're not talking about us. The activism itself looks very different, right? Like the issues that they're fighting for are very different. The South Asian students are talking about their first memories of being politicized as children um, after 9-11 had happened. Um, And Southeast Asian students are talking about doing tremendous work within um, communities around refugee experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, your research really echoes this broader movement to, like, change the conversation around diversity to be less simplistic and more specific. So what does that mean for the future of the term Asian American? I do think that it's going to continue to be relevant until we either politicize another way of thinking about this community um, or until there's another set of categories that we can go by outside beyond just the basic ethnic identity. Individual. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I would imagine that Asian American is going to become outdated at some point. Um, it's just too broad, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's too broad. There's way too many languages and cultures and histories and all that stuff under this umbrella. And that's not to say that Latinx and Black don't also have very diverse communities. But of course, those have different relationships. And so I'm not sure. I think, I mean, people still use Oriental, which I find fascinating. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we were just saying like when we were brainstorming that it's still on a lot of food things, like Oriental flavor. I mean, and you know, I think my grandma still uses that term. It's a generational thing, right? Like we didn't stop using Negro or, you know, um, colored until we had a different politicized term to replace that. And so... I'm not sure. I'm really I'm really interested to see what terms will become popularized. Yeah. I guess we'll have to see. I do have to mention that maybe like a couple of years ago when Latinx, like, you know, the gender neutral aspect became a thing sort of like in academic spaces, there were a ton of my 
like family and friends and people who were like sort of close to me who were like, oh, that term was, that's never going to get caught on. Like that's not, no one's going to say Latinx. Like, and now I just find it interesting that like, that's really, it's actually becoming like normalized. And I'm so happy because it shows that when you do come up with something with a term that has purpose, that has political sort of meaning and that people can understand how it tangibly affects people's lives, that we do adopt them. But the things that don't catch on are the ones that don't have that same substance. So, Julia, does this affect how you feel about seeing Asian American now? Mm, Do you think it's too late to choose an easier topic for our episode? (laughs) I kind of think that ship has sailed. (laughs) Well, to be honest, the weird thing is that I've wanted to work on an episode like this for a long time. Like, before Self-Evident existed, I used to write down ideas for what I would put in it. But when it comes to actually trying to pin it down, it's so much harder because there's no way to really cover everything. I know. But despite that, I think there are some common truths underneath the term Asian American that we were able to look at through these stories. The first being the history of the term and how it came from a necessity for unity, for Asian American civil rights inspired by other activists of color. And for a lot of people, there's still a need for pan-Asian community and belonging. And whether or not you find that in K-pop is up to you. Right. But this is what laid the groundwork, I think, for us to talk about Asian American representation in media, in Asian American politics, and even Asian American podcasts. Yeah. And at the same time, we have plenty of evidence that the same picture of Asian America that we've had for so long isn't accurate anymore. Like in Alana's case, the label Asian American at first was defined by other people and their stereotypes, or for Maha, by exclusion. Exactly. And just to echo Marisico, it's the substance behind the label that matters. Mm -hmm. So we need to redefine what Asian American means for ourselves. My guess is that saying Asian American will keep some of the old meaning, but gain all these new dimensions from the voices that we're hearing today. And that's why we have to keep asking people and sharing their stories. Because I think that when we have a more honest and full picture of the Asian American experience, that's when we can start to really think about what we need in the future. Yeah, I still have no idea what that new term might be, but Mm -hmm. it sounds like we just have to keep listening. What you described, though, is really the work of a lifetime. I know, but luckily we're not the only ones doing it. And at the very least, we can do more stories about this in the future. Yes, I'm on board with that. Thanks so much, Kathy. Thanks, Julia. Next time on Self-Evident, one man's mission to reconnect with his parents changes how he sees himself and his heritage forever. And whenever I have company around them, I see they're charming and funny and decent people. And then we eat and it's silence. And I wonder why. The alienation that you feel from Filipino culture from your Filipino heritage mm-hmm. and the alienation that you feel from your own parents yeah. and family. What do you think the relationship between those two is? I f- almost feel like they're the same thing. That's what I, that's like the big question. This episode was produced by Julia Shu and me, Kathy Irway. We were edited by Cheryl Duvall and mixed by Timothy Lou Lee. We had production support from James Boo, Kat Lee, Mona Ye, and Shayna Deloria. And our theme music is by Dorian Love. We want to hear from you. So let us know what you thought about this episode on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Self Evident Show. 
You can also email us your thoughts at community at selfevidentshow.com. Help us get the word out by recommending this episode to your friends, family, and coworkers. You can also help us out by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Thanks to our amazing advisors and all the members of our community panel who gave us feedback on this episode before it aired. If you want to be a part of our storytelling process, or if you want sneak peeks and behind-the-scenes content, sign up for a newsletter at selfevidentshow.com. We want to give a special shout-out to everyone who sent in voice memos and had conversations with us about how they felt about the term Asian American. Akira Olivia Kumamoto. Alana Mohammed, Andrew Shea, Julia Arcega, Kelly Chan, Maha Chaudhry, Marisica Wheaton, Mia Warren, Nicole Goh, Sharman Hussain, Vaisna Haas, and of course to Stuart Quo. And a very special thank you to Noah Berland and the other 1,004 crowdfund backers whose support made this season possible. Self Evident is a studio to be production. This season is presented by the Center for Asian American Media with support from the Ford Foundation and you, our listeners. Our show was incubated at the Made in New York Media Center by IFP. We're managed by James Boob and Talisa Chang. Our senior producer is Julia Shu. Our executive producer is Ken Akeda. Our audience team is Blair Matsura, Joyce Mpunashat, Justine Lee, and Kara Wisniewski. I'm Kathy Arway. Let's talk soon. Until then, keep on sharing Asian America's stories.